Well, as we've already been talking this morning, we, we recognize that we have promises from God. Wonderful promises. And we've seen, as we looked last week at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, that God began those promises long before us. Uh, he stated them out loud to a man named Abram when he called Abram to come follow him. Leave where you're at. Go where I tell you. And so God promises Abram some things. He promises him a place, a land. He promises him a seed or offspring. And he promises him that he will be a blessing. That's kind of, that's kind of the one of these things is not like the other. I'm going to make you a blessing to other people. I'm going to make your offspring a blessing to other people. Specifically, you already know this, the seed of the woman that was promised by God to crush the head of the serpent all the way back at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is this same seed that has worked his way down through a protected line to Abram and will continue to work his way through history and will be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In this way, Abraham's descendant, Abraham's seed, not, not plural, not the many, but the one, the one who would fulfill the promise of the one seed is Jesus Christ, who would, who would accomplish salvation on the cross for sinners. And now we have a new, whole new explosion of the word seed, don't we? Because through faith in Christ, people explode into the church and the kingdom of God. That's the many. That's the many people that are promised. Believers in the kingdom. And so all of that explodes in Christ, and we're understanding these things as we trace this seed. And as we, as we look at Abram, we see something amazing, and we're reminded of it before, how it is that because God made a promise, and he will bring it to completion, we're confident of those things, but he does amazing work in between as he protects his promise, as he protects that seed, makes sure that the promise, as he's promised it, will come to pass. Now, Abram, the seed is going to pass through Abram. It's going to, the seed of the woman is going to become the Lord Jesus Christ, eventually passes through Abram and Sarai. And, and we look at Abram, and sometimes Abram does well. Like us, sometimes we do well. And sometimes Abram doesn't do well at all. And sometimes we don't do well at all. So the Bible's wonderful. Scripture's wonderful in that it, it portrays people as they are. And so we see Abram today as he is. And we recognize that in many ways, he's not that different from us. Sometimes we do well. Sometimes we don't do so well. And yet, like Abram, we have promises from God. And so the encouragement today, I think, from Abram is to know and believe the promises of God in your life, believer, and apply them that we would do well. If you want to follow along in the sermon outline in the bulletin for you, you'll see this sermon theme. Despite our lack of faith, unbelief, and instinctive desire to trust our own efforts to counter trials, God not only protects us from the consequences of our own sin, He graciously provides abundant blessings and prepares us to worship Him. Now, that's a lot to get out of a couple of stories about Abraham, but I think we are. I think we're going to get all of that right here. So let me go ahead and read Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, 
through chapter 13, verse 4. Now there was a famine in the land. You know, I'm just going to make a couple comments as I go through. I just interrupted the reading already. I'm just going to make a couple small comments as we go through, so I won't have to come back to them later. Now there was a famine in the land, and the land is Canaan. It's the land that Abram's in, and the land that God has promised to give to him and his offspring. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn. Do you know what sojourning is? You know, I used to be confused about this for a long time. I don't know why. I just failed to look the word up. I always thought sojourning, since it had that word journ, right, journey. I thought, I thought sojourn was the walking. It's not. Sojourn is the staying. So when you sojourn somewhere, you stay there for a little while. Now, it implies that you're going you're gonna to travel to get there and you're going to travel away afterwards. But the word sojourn really is, to, is the staying part. That's why he doesn't sojourn down to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt, and there he sojourns for a time. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Now, a couple of things. There's just kind of this repeated... Peter. We know her name Sarai. We know Moses, who's writing, knows her name Sarai, but he keeps saying the woman, the woman. And I think that causes us to hearken back to something, and that is to the woman in creation. That This is a redo. Abram is a redo of creation, just as Noah was a redo of creation. Here's another chance for Abram now, instead of Adam, and the woman, Sarai now, instead of Eve, to make a fresh start, to do the right thing, uh, to, be, to be a better humanity, right? It's a redo as we get into Abram. And, and then there's, there's the word Pharaoh. You know, this is the first time the word Pharaoh appears in Scripture. And is the woman supposed to be a part of Pharaoh's house? No. Sarai is part of Abram's house. And therefore, God's house, because he has called them. Just a couple things as we work our way along. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her. And go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, so what orders do you think Pharaoh gave his men? Exactly what we read. Get him out. Take the stuff with him. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was... Very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. 
And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So let's take a look here. No sooner had God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham than Abram leaves the land because of a famine. There's not enough food in the land to feed Abram, to feed his people, to feed his flocks. Often in Scripture we read of famine in the land due to drought, and almost as often we read of the people fleeing to Egypt to survive for a time. Canaan's at a higher level of elevation. It's at an arid climate. Egypt is a lower level of elevation, has a wetter climate, has a fertile soil. God has promised to Abram a land that is hostile to Abram. That's interesting. That place is hostile to Abram for two reasons. One, because the land is possessed by another people, the Canaanites, who are not going to give it away without a fight. And second, the land itself does not sustain life. It's not producing food so Abraham can live there. So what is Abram to do? You don't have to answer out loud, but it is a real question. What is Abram to do? Should he stay or should he go? I think that we're meant to see and think about this because God often does the same thing in our lives, doesn't he? The land is a promise and the land is a problem for Abram. Does God ever do that in your life? Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? God often, not always, but God often follows this pattern. He makes promises to his people that seem impossible to come true. Or promises that seem so fragile that they'll surely break if we try to, try to take hold of them. God may assure you of something, and then one thing after another comes along that causes you to question his promises, to question his assurances, to doubt his assurances, you know, like a land that requires taking. A dry farmland that needs rain over which you have no control. And you thought things like that only happened to you, but they, they're happening right here to Abram. There's this promise of God that seems difficult. Do you know that it happened to Jesus too? When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John, he came up out of the water and God said, you're my son, my only son. I love you and I delight in you. And immediately, Mark says, the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by Satan. See, the pattern of God's promise is great assurance precedes severe test. Great assurance is there for a reason. There is likely a severe test coming. Promise and assurance is given so that you will pass the test. Can God provide manna in the wilderness? Abram? Yes, he can. Will God provide his promise of the son who's the bread of light? Yes, he will. See, Abram has a promise. He has a relevant promise. But the promise appears threatened to Abram. And what, what, what we often miss in our own lives is something we can clearly see in Abram's life. That's why Scripture's so wonderful to look at. Abram has a promise that he doesn't use. We look at Abram and we see that Abram has a promise that he doesn't use. When faced with famine, Abram fails to apply the promise. He decides to feast in another land. Abram is struggling to believe the promise. 
So he finds his own solution to the problem. I know what I'll do. And I think we, we see that that is a problem with Abraham, that he kind of prefers his own solutions. In fact, we may have seen it a little bit already. Remember that God called Abram to separate from his father's house, to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to Canaan. Remember how we looked at that last week? But Abram took his father with him. And they didn't even go all the way to Canaan. They stopped in Haran until Terah, his father, died, and then they went on to Canaan. It's easy to criticize Abraham, isn't it? Look at this clown. Look at this guy. But this passage is here to help us to criticize ourselves, to reflect upon ourselves. We're able to look at Abraham as a case study, as it were, and then look and see, why don't we apply the promises of God that we have? Sometimes, not always, great assurance precedes severe tests in our lives. And so we'd be wise to learn this pattern. Remember, Abram was a native of Mesopotamia when he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, but he's, he's not a native of Egypt. As a sojourner, Abram's rights and his privileges will depend upon the people of Egypt, the Egyptians. And he can expect the Egyptians will want some form of payment for allowing Abram and his people and his livestock to eat their food. And so when, when Abram obeyed God and left Ur of the Chaldees, he became a, he became a sojourner and he went. He's from away. The Egyptians would say, well, you're from away, aren't you? Yes, he is. And so there's this question now of wife or sister. I had a lot of fun with, I had a lot of fun with the outline. You may have seen that. The, the questions going back and forth, that was a little bit of fun. So uh, feast or famine, well, Abram chose to go to a different land and, and feast. Wife or sister is the question hanging in the balance now. And Abram participate, anticipates, rather, one payment that the Egyptians may want, Sarai. They might see that as a good trade. Someone will want his beautiful wife, Sarai, to be their wife. And the way that they would go about that is to make her a widow. Kill the husband. We now have a widow, an unmarried woman, and take her. So Abram instructs Sarai to tell them that she's only his sister, not his wife, so they won't kill him. And, and I think it's just as selfish as it sounds. I mean, some will speculate that Abram was just trying to do his best to preserve God's promise by, by keeping himself alive. If Abraham's killed, well, then God's promise of a seed is over, uh, as if it was a fragile promise. But if he was really worried about the promise, I think he probably would have had just as much concern for Sarai, his wife, who's supposed to bear the seed, right? So it, it kinda, it, I think that's kind of thin. And there's nothing in the text to really make us think that Abram's being faithful. He's certainly not being faithful to his wife. The point is clear that Abram was really concerned about himself. At best, like us, his motives were mixed. One of the very helpful things about Scripture is that it's just so honest. Our hero Abram is a fallen man with a fallen nature, just like all of his forefathers before him. He's a selfish sinner. He's a coward, and he's willing to abandon his wife to save himself. Does Abraham remind you of somebody? Anybody? How about Adam? 
I think he reminds us of Adam. When the serpent approached Eve, Adam, her husband, was supposed to grab the snake, throw it out of the garden. But he didn't. He abandoned his wife to the devil's lies. Once again, Abram has a promise that he fails to use. Even when he gets down into Egypt. When the Egyptians ask for Sarai, Abram's supposed to say, you can't have her. She's my wife. And trust God for the outcome based on the promise of a seed and another promise that Abram already has, one of protection. Once again, Abram fails to apply the promise and forms his own solution to the problem. He urges his wife to lie to save himself. But what we see to be true of Abram is true of us. He stumbles because he fears man and he lacks faith in God. The scriptures do not present God's people as perfect or sinless, not even the great patriarch Abraham. Scripture presents God's people with all of their failings, all of their shortcomings, all their need for God's grace, all their need for a Savior. That's how we're pictured in Scripture. So Abram urges Sarai to lie about being his wife. And in doing so, the question becomes, well, will he experience plight? Will it be harder for Abraham, or will he experience plunder? Will he, will he get tons of stuff? Will it go poorly, or will it go well? The Egyptians do think Sarai's beautiful, so beautiful that they dare not keep her for themselves, but sing the praises of her beauty to Pharaoh. It's the same way that you husbands sing the, sing the praises of your, your wife's beauty to her, right? All the time. That's an application. And Abram, Abram's trick worked. Abram's trick worked, and they spared Abram's life thinking that Sarai, well, that he was Sarai's brother. Not only were Abram and his people and their livestock allowed to sojourn in Egypt, but because Pharaoh was so pleased with his beautiful new wife, he gave Abram plunder. So he didn't suffer plight. He received plunder. He received sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants, and I don't think he expected that. By the way, Just because your tricks and your scheming work doesn't mean you were right. Especially if you sin and fail to believe God's promises. We need to know that. Abram sinned when he lied and when he convinced Sarai to lie about being his wife. Worse, I think, was Abram's failure to uphold his marriage covenant and his failure to protect his wife. It's grievous that he would abandon her to any taker. And that's before we even get to the theological understanding that she too had a promised role in God's plan of redemption. And Abram knew that. Even so, Abram's biggest problem was not his deception. It was his unbelief. That's Abram's biggest problem. Abram failed to believe and apply God's promise of protection in chapter 12, verse 3, when God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Even if Pharaoh of Egypt should dishonor Abram by taking his wife, God will curse him. Abram was supposed to believe that. So another thing we need to know is that God's promises don't go away just because of your lack of faith in them. We see that in Abram's story as well. 
Somehow Pharaoh discovers that Sarai is in fact Abram's wife. I suspect it became plain to him when Abram's uh, God afflicted Pharaoh in his home with great plagues because of Sarai. Somewhere in there he clued in. And there's a stark contrast in Moses' words here. Remember, Moses is the author. Because of Sarai, Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham. You read those words in the verse. He dealt well with him. Because of Sarai, God dealt harshly with Pharaoh. A big contrast. Pharaoh now knows that Abram lied to him. Notice it's Abram's lie, not Sarai's lie. That's the problem here. And, and Pharaoh's indignant. I mean, this man is the leader of the world's superpower. And he's indignant. Look at how you've dealt with me, Abram. You lied to me about your wife. I mean, even Pharaoh says, who does that? Abram did. And now, even though Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh has no moral qualms about taking a woman. Probably no, 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 no moral qualms about killing a husband and taking a woman. But he does seem to have a right to be angry here. And he commands Abram to take his wife Sarai and get out of Egypt with his plunder. I think that's interesting. Take the stuff with you. Pharaoh doesn't want to take, uh, you know, take it back from him and experience round two of God's plagues of judgment for mistreating his servant. And so this... This passage, it highlights two very important things. First, it highlights Abram's unbelief. It highlights Abram's unbelief. He had God's promise of protection, but he failed to apply it. One commentator says that Abram failed to rub the promises of God into his fearful circumstances. You have fearful circumstances and you have the promises of God to apply them. You've got you to rub those things in there. You know, it's like, like when, a, when a kid skins his knee. You just say, rub dirt on it. Just rub it in there, right? It'll be okay. We need to, we need to rub the promises of God into our, into our trials and our fearful circumstances. But we're like Abraham. We don't. We have these same promises of God. Promises of a place, of a blessed seed that is Christ, and of that seed's protection and watch care over us, and we fail to use them. We fail to apply what we have already been given in our lives. Instead, we try to bring about God's blessing in our own way, in our own lives. We, we think ourselves wise, wiser than we are. We think ourselves smart, shrewd, clever. We can, we can call it, when we fail, impatience or ignorance, or sometimes we'll call it wisdom, but it's really unbelief in the promises. And we would do better to confess. Lord Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Instead of making excuses and not learning lessons from Abraham that are here to be learned. I mean, this is low-hanging fruit. This is knowledge to grab and to put in your life. And the second thing that just explodes in this account is the grace and faithfulness of God to his chosen people. Abram's at fault. He's made a mess. Pharaoh's been duped. And still, Yahweh intercedes for his people. Think about it. There's a period of time in which God's binding promise of a great nation through Abram and Sarai 
is actually in jeopardy. Because Sarai is the wife of Pharaoh now, not of Abram. Abram did that. Smart, savvy, resourceful, worldly wise Abram did that. And the question is, why should we care what Abram did 4,000 years after the fact? It's just a story. No. It matters because God's promise to Abram is God's promise to Jesus that he will be the promised seed who blesses all the nations. The salvation of sinners today is hanging in the balance in Egypt. But God's oath is binding. And he will bring his promises to pass. That's our God. And that's Abram's God. And Abram sees it. And so Abram worships the Lord. What a great response. Abram leaves Egypt having plundered great wealth from Pharaoh. Livestock, silver, gold. And he goes back to Canaan, back to the place he had encamped before. Between Bethel and Ai, where he had built an altar and worshipped God. And there again, he worships God. He goes back to the place where he was at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. That's a quote. He called upon the name of the Lord. An altar is for what? An altar is for sacrifices. Abram offers a sacrifice to atone for his sins against God. And again, calling upon the name of the Lord. We've mentioned this a few times as we've gone through Genesis. It's two things mashed together. One, it's calling upon the name of the Lord in prayer. And two, it's calling out the name of the Lord in proclamation. Telling the world the words and deeds of God. And together it means worship. Abram is doing his best to lead his people. Remember, he's surrounded by, he's surrounded by a people that he's got with him. He's doing his best to lead his people to fill this pagan land right there in the middle of pagan country, Canaan, with the glory of God. By praying to God and declaring his glory, his goodness and his mighty works, for Pete's sake, he just brought plagues down on Pharaoh. They know who Pharaoh is. They know who Egypt is. There's no world leader that the Lord can't rain down plagues upon and cause him to make him leave you alone. Nobody. And just like us, Abram's obedience to God, it's flawed. It's flawed obedience. And just like us, he's getting better. He's getting better. He's learning. Even if it's, even if it's two steps forward, one step back, he's learning to believe the promises of God, and he's getting better. That's encouraging. Because that's what our sanctification looks like. It looks like two steps forward, one step back. And if it ever looks like one step forward, two steps back, you grab a brother or sister by the hand, you ask for help. So Abram sojourns in Canaan, beginning in chapter 13, verse 5. Let me read chapter 13, verse 5 through 18, and then we'll talk about it. So Abram's rich, and he's worshipped, and he's got all this stuff, and then Lot comes back into the picture. Lot who went with Abram, 
also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support the both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that no one can count the dust of the earth. Your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. The word sojourn, again, short-term stay. Abram sojourns. He stays in a place for a short time, and then he moves on to sojourn in another location. He's he's semi-nomadic. He's a semi-nomadic shepherd. He's moving on the need for pasture for his flocks to eat. He, He needs water for his flocks to drink, so he looks for you, good places that have those things and weather conditions. The seasons matter to him. He follows the seasons. And so he's, he's in this sojourning pattern. Just as in Egypt, Abram will need permission from the people of the land to sojourn there. Moses reminds us that the Canaanites and the Perizzites possess this land. He's going to have to deal with them. He's going to have to enter negotiations with them uh, because he's, he's consuming their resources. And, and he may present a threat to them. They're not sure. You know, they'll, they'll send somebody out on a camel and say, hey, what are, you, what are you doing here? Who are you? How long are you planning to stay? And when Abram left Ur, you remember, he left the city with its walls and his community with its army. He left the protection and the security and numbers that the Canaanites have. That's, that's what they are. They've, they've got those things. So they'll want to know who's wandered into their territory and sized them up. All that just to say, as we read about Abram, We need to just remember he's got all these people around him that he's responsible for. He's got these huge flocks that are taking up land. Think of a, you know, Westward Ho, Western movie uh, from a long time ago. And uh, and so he's meeting people, just as he did in in Egypt. He's meeting people. He's negotiating with people. He's he's gaining a reputation. All of these things are happening in the meantime. So Abram's nephew Lot is back in the picture, and both of them have prospered. Together they have so much livestock that they can't spread out far enough. They can't stay in the same location and spread out far enough so that their livestock can eat. So their herdsmen, the men doing the real work of tending the flocks, are fighting over space for their herds. 
They're fighting over grass, they're fighting over water, and they're fighting each other. And Abram shows himself to be the older, wiser man here. I mean, this is welcome. This is a welcome observance for us. Abram shows himself to be the older, wiser man here, the family man. The Canaanites already represent a threat from outside the camp. Abram doesn't need Lot to become a threat inside the camp. That would be disastrous. And appealing to peace among the brethren, he proposes that they separate camps. Abram also shows himself to be a generous man, doesn't he? I mean, he is in the authoritative position of choosing the land he wants and telling his nephew Lot to go over there. And amazingly, he defers to Lot. Abram shows himself to be humble and unselfish. And he lets Lot choose the land that he wants. So the question becomes left or right. Which Lot going to choose? Lot lifts his eyes. What's implied is that Lot gave no thought to Abram, his elder. He lifted his eyes. Lot gave no thought to God by praying, Lord, which direction should I go? No, Lot just lifts his eyes. Lot sees with his worldly eyes that the grass and the water and the area of the Jordan look best. And so he takes what was best for him. And we're meant to see Lot that way because... It's the way Lot is. But look at how the land is described. Lot imagines that it's like, God, it's like the Garden of Eden. It's so green. Lot never saw the Garden of Eden. It, it, it reminds him of the, the fertile land in Egypt where, where Pharaoh just kicked him out. The place where they went when Canaan was dry. So, so he led all of his people to travel in what direction? East. East. Moses paints us a symbolic picture of Lot choosing poorly. East represents movement away from God. East of the garden. East of Eden. Man moved east and built the tower in Babel. And Lot continues to move east. And Lot ends up in the wicked worldly city of Sodom. The thing is that Lot surely knows he had, he had knowledge of Sodom's wickedness. And he chose to go there anyway because it looked more prosperous. Lot chooses prosperity over morality or righteousness. By contrast, unselfish Abraham is left there in Canaan, the land that doesn't look quite as nice as the land that Lot chose. But Abram was trusting God for the outcome of his generosity to Lot. Even so, he might be wondering if he had been foolish or faithful in deferring to Lot. We wonder that, don't we? The Lord calls us to be gentle and we're gentle to somebody and we wonder if we were foolish to let them run over us like that. The Lord calls us to be generous and we give money to somebody or some cause and, and then we wonder if we've been foolish for being so generous. We wonder things like that. If we actually place all of our hope in the promises of God, not in the world and the things in the world, won't we miss out on the good life now? Foolish or faithful? We wonder that. If we, if we actually become the people that God has called us to be, humble and hopeful, won't we, won't we just be taking advantage of our, our whole lives on this earth? After all, if we, if we slow walk 
our sanctification. Isn't it still sanctification? Picture this scene. I think this is God's answer. If Abraham's family thoughts about being foolish or, or faithful. Abram is standing on a high hill in the hill country near Bethel. And there's a crossroads there. There's a major road running north and south. There's another one running east and west. And Abram has a vast view of stretches of land in every direction from this hilltop in the hill country. At the same time, Abram can see Bethel, a significant city with a pagan temple in it, surrounded by a strong wall, four towers where the gates for entrance and exit to the city are, an obvious reminder that the Canaanites own this land and they're not going to give it up. It's a fortress. And the Lord says to Abraham, Abram, lift up your eyes. Look in every direction. Take a long, hard look at the fortifications at Bethel. Take your time. Drink it in. See it all. For all the land that you see, I will give to you. And to your seed forever. And that's not all. And that's not all. Your seed, your offspring, will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, so far, dust of the earth may not be a good thing in Genesis, but here it is. Here it is. It's like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. The dust of the earth is too numerous for anyone to count, and that's how your God-promised offspring will be in this God-promised land. And it seems impossible for God to promise this to childless Abram, who is old and married to childless Sarai, who's barren. It seems impossible for God to promise this Canaanite land to Abram with an eternal promise, but he does. The people of God will forever be bound to the land of God's promise. It's an affirmation of God's promise and the goodness of God to Abram. It's an assurance of God's promise and his grace to Abram. And it comes with instructions. Get up and go. Walk and sojourn in the land. For I will give it to you. He says it again. Abram has not been foolish to trust in God and his promises. And Abram goes as the Lord commands him to go. Abram's walk through the land is not just a sightseeing trip. Merely to to view what's been promised, it's more than that. It's a land survey. He's inspecting, he's taking notes, he's mapping. And it's a demonstration of his future ownership. He's marching across it 
in demonstration that it will be his. He may not possess the land yet, but he possesses the official grant to the land from the one who has the authority to give it. And Abram goes, and Abram worships the Lord. I love that about Abram. As he sojourns to the the oaks at Mamre in Hebron, Mamre is the name of a man, and he's an Amorite and a friend and an ally of Abram. And Abram and Sarai and all of his people and all of his flocks go to that place, and they camp in that spot. And there Abram builds an altar to the Lord, Abram the sinner offers sacrifices and he worships God. He worships God only and openly in a pagan land. And he's comforted by the promises of God and he's on mission in the promises of God. If you just consider these, these passages, I just want to wrap up with four, four points under the heading of Christ's church worships God in her sojourn to the promised land. I want to bring that a little, little closer to us. I want to bring some of Abram's applications a little closer to us. See, God has promised us a place to worship him in Christ. If I were to ask you what God has promised you, your first answer would probably not be, well, land, of course. Would it? It's important for us to understand that what God promised to Abraham, he has promised to Christ, that is his seed, and what he has promised to Christ, he has promised to us who are in Christ. That's how that works. So God has promised us a land, a place for us. It's not Canaan. Rather, it is the new heavens and the new earth that Christ will bring about. The younger you are, the less likely you are to think about that. As you grow older, the more likely you are to think about that, what the future holds. Abram thought about it all the time. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 8, By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Abram, or Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I didn't make it up. It's right here in Scripture. The place that God promised Abram, the place that Abram himself was looking for is the new heavens and the new earth. And all of us who are spiritual descendants of Abram, believers in the seed, believers in the promise, are heading to that land. We're bound to that place, that destination. In this promise to Abram, God has bound us to the promised land in Christ. We don't possess it yet, do we? But it's a helpful reminder that we are not of this world. We're a bit, we're, we're, we're a bit sojourners here. We're here for a little while. And God has promised us a place with himself. And we're to apply that promise of a place to our daily living in this place. 
So you're not going to put down ultimate roots here. You make decisions differently when you know you're going there and you're only a sojourner here. Rub that into your daily trials and stop living as if this is your place. It's not. Don't make decisions like Lot, preferring earthly prosperity to heavenly righteousness. God is lifting our eyes to see the land that he will give to you. See it and believe. God has promised us a place to worship him in Christ forever. And God keeps and protects us in Christ. I think you should find that relevant. It should be a great encouragement to us that God will bring all his plans and purposes to pass. God keeps the sinners he has saved. Even though we're weak and sinful, Jesus protects his people. He has promised his church, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, is there any point in time in that promise where he won't be with us? No, there's not. You know, Moses is writing this book after having led Israel out of bondage in Egypt. This, he's writing this, but he's writing this in the wilderness before they cross the Jordan River. The Exodus is in his past. He can't help but notice how what has just experienced in leading Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the wilderness, parallels Abram's sojourn in Egypt. Abram and Israel entered Egypt to escape famine. Sarai is, in a sense, held hostage by Pharaoh. She didn't choose to marry the guy. Israel was held in slavery by Pharaoh. In both cases, God strikes Pharaoh's house with devastating plagues. And my favorite part, both Abram and Israel leave Egypt with great plunder. Now, I don't say that's my favorite part because I'm greedy for gold. If I am, pray for me. I'm working on that. But because the New Testament use of the word plunder is always Christ plundering souls from Satan's kingdom. That's wonderful. So God has promised us a place to worship him in Christ and he keeps us and he protects us in Christ. And God grants us peace and prosperity in Christ. To be kept and protected by God, you must first give yourself to God. Just as God called Abram, God is calling every person here to let go of their lives and to follow him all the way. All the way to the final destination. The blessing of peace that God promises comes to you then, no surprise, through Jesus, God's promised seed. Which means that you must believe this promise. You must believe this promise. So here's the promise. On the cross, Jesus bore, he, he received, he experienced, he suffered Jesus bore God's just wrath on the sins of those who believe the promise. Your belief won't be perfect at first. But just as Abraham's belief and faith was not perfect at first, what little faith he had, he placed squarely 
on the promise of Jesus. That's the key. And that's what God is calling you to do this morning, if you have not already. Depend on Jesus, his sin atoning death on your behalf, so that your sins are forgiven. Trust in this rock-solid peace with God, which comes from God, that when you sojourn on this earth ends, you will not go to hell, but to a beautiful place that he's prepared for you. Rely upon Jesus to prosper you spiritually. He transforms you into his likeness and his character. And respond like Abram with open, unashamed, whole life worship of God. Because you were saved through his judgment on his son. He's the only and obvious object of your worship. God has promised us a place to worship him in Christ. He keeps and protects us in Christ, and God grants us peace and prosperity in Christ, and lastly, God prepares us to proclaim and plunder in Christ. He prepares his worshipers to proclaim and to plunder. Do you know what Abram learned as he witnessed the plagues of God on Pharaoh? I mean, it must have been a sight. I think Abram learned that despite all of his clever scheming to help God achieve God's promised ends, only the power of God guarantees the plan of God. And always the power of God guarantees the plan of God. God's power, powerfully expressed, should produce a couple of attitudes in us. The first is humility. Well, I mean, Abram must have seen those plagues and realized God really knows what he's doing. He's got his hand on the wheel. How can Abram possibly survive and be preserved to receive the gracious promises of God while sojourning in such a hostile world? How will his seed ever possess such a hostile land? How will he ever have seed numerous as the dust of the earth when Sarai's barren? The only answer is by the power of God. All of Abram's stumbling and bumbling, all of the ways that we get in God's way with our own really good solutions to help God solve his problems, require the power of God to bring about his promises. And he applies his power. The second attitude that the power of God powerfully displayed in our lives should produce is hope. God does intervene. God intervenes. God steps in just in time. Not as early as we think we would like for him to, but never late, though it may appear to us that he has been. Hope is how we keep going. How Abram keeps going. How the church keeps going. Our hope in God's power to bring about his promises is sure and certain, and he will do it. Over and over, he assures us, he assures our unbelieving hearts that he is true. And so we don't have to despair. Things not going your way in the world, you don't have to despair. 
Yes, as God's saved people, we will sin. But rather than despair, we repent. We go to the cross, just as Abram went back to the hill country between Bethel and I to the altar where he first worshipped God. He goes back to the cross. We go back to the cross where we first saw the light and the burden of our hearts rolled away. We sing. There we receive forgiveness by the grace of God through the completed work of Jesus Christ. We go back to the cross. The work is already completed. And maybe you're wondering, how has God powerfully displayed His power in my life? Well, you really need to go back to the cross where Christ the seed crushed your enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Where he forged your salvation through God's judgment upon himself. Where Jesus, having bound the strong man as the stronger man, is now plundering Satan's house of your soul and dust of the earth countless others. Praise God. He has worked powerfully in your life. The power of plagues is nothing compared to the power of resurrection that God has worked in those who believe in Christ by faith. And he's still working that power. And so let's remember, despite our lack of faith, our unbelief, and our instinctive to trust our own efforts to counter trials in our lives, God not only protects us from the consequences of our own sin, He graciously provides abundant blessings and prepares us to worship Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we pray that You would be pleased to press it deep into our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would would be learning that we would be growing in knowledge, that we would be living and experiencing the power of God in Christ, in us. We pray for the beautiful presence of God in the fellowship of the Spirit that indwells us. Oh, how you've blessed us. Oh, how we desire to worship you. In Christ's name, amen.